I'm Roland Simons and this is the Property Questions Answered Show, the show where I and a special guest answer your questions about property. So today I have a great guest for you, Andy Graham. Andy co-founded and runs Smart Property, a diversified HMO business with owned properties, rent to rent and lettings. So with more than 10 years in the business, he's actually seen the reality of managing a large HMO portfolio on a long-term basis. In this episode, we answer your questions about stacking deals, licensing requirements, and the emergence of large co-living developments. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Andy, welcome to the show. How's it going? Very good, Roland. Good to see you again. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, not at all. Thanks for taking the time. So um, look, for this isn't an interview show, as you know, but for some people won't have that much context for sort of who you are and what you do. So do you want to give us sort of a brief intro of you know what your sort of business looks like um, from you know when you started through to now, what that sort of like journey has looked like, but you know, in a sort of high level, high level form. Yeah, sure. So I've actually been investing in HMOs for, for 10, 11 years, pretty much right out of university. I um, I got my first one, and at that time it you know it was nothing more than just a bit of a kind of a, um, an itch that that needed to be scratched and um, it went really well. And um, I, I bought something several hundred miles away from where I was living at the time, um, but even so managed to make it work. Went back down to Cornwall, which was where I was living, doing lots of surfing down there. And uh, just cracked on with my, my professional job as a physio. And um, yeah, I didn't really have many living expenses. I, you know, I just enjoyed being by the beach and surfing and and stuff like that and um, saved up for the next one and then I did that a few times and then you know started to realize that actually I was sort of, you know, earning more than I was from my professional role and yeah. then I wasn't having to turn up you know every day between nine and five um, and so I suppose it evolved the idea evolved into you know um, from maybe just having my own portfolio to maybe building a, a business out of it but of course, I was getting limited on my, my time, the ability to invest up in the north or actually in the Midlands and I was based in the southwest. So there came a point where I had to start compromising. So I started to transition at my, my, um, my professional role, um, did some contracting, which was, which was really helpful. And I'd recommend for anyone um, who's got that opportunity to do it. But um, eventually what happened was I, I, I moved completely away from my professional role and full-time into property. And um, in that process, I met um, the founding partners of, of Smart Property and we went on to grow that into, you know, a, about a, a hundred properties, the, the kind of the overall sort of broad portfolio. Um, we scaled with some finance that we raised on Crowdcube, so a big um, crowdfunding platform. We, we went on there and kind of sold the idea of our business and um, we were doing lots of rent to rent and, and investment and the crowd got behind it and we, we got an incredible business valuation and you know, lots of funds to reinvest in it. And it just sort of, that was a step change again and, and it's just continued since then really. And where we're currently at is um, we're, we're an investment and a management group and I have my own portfolio. So um, we have lots of rent-to-rents in the business. We I do lots of work with private investors who come up from London overseas to invest. And, yeah. and then we have this kind of management package to, to manage everything in the portfolio. Cool. So you've got stuff that you own, you've got rent-to-rent, and you also have a lettings business as well, would you say? Or Yeah, yeah. I suppose we're a lettings business. Like, yeah. you, you, you that you... That, do you manage properties that are outside the rent-to-rent -rent model? Or? Yeah, we do, yeah. So everything that we manage for our investors is um, is on a standard management basis, yeah. although they're, they're almost the perfect client, really, because we get more or less full control and um, they are very distanced from what we do. We do work with some local private landlords. Um, they're a bit of a feeder for rent-to-rent -rent as well, um, but that's much more challenging, Roland. Um, and... You know, it's 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 not it's definitely not something that we would have ever started out with. It it kind of grew from, um, I suppose it was a bolt on actually to the other services that we had. So this is what I'm really interested in because, and not just because you've just given me that extra context about how you were like a beach bum surfing and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have yeah, you have it seems quite deliberately built 
a real business. I mean, you know, we all treat our property investing like a business and, you know, and it is technically because we're all doing it in a corporate wrapper these days or most of us, but you know, you've got a, you've got a business with a lot of moving parts, different strategies, people, like how many staff? Um, I've got three permanent staff members now. We yeah. were at um, six, um, but we've, I've condensed the, I've actually condensed the business, got to a level and then started to condense it back down since then, yeah. So what was the, you know, how did you kind of decide, did it, was it an active decision, like we're going to build, you know, a real business at scale here, or was it something that sort of evolved naturally, slash yeah. <laughs> It's a good question. I mean, um, ask is because, you know, a lot of people look at property as, you know, passive, and we will both agree that it isn't, but, mm -hmm. There are degrees of passivity about how you can kind of structure that and design the business versus the lifestyle, etc. So, how did you kind of like process that? It initially it was it was an organic thought and, and process that that I was personally going through. Um, I, my hand was almost forced because, as you know, I started investing in two thousand and nine and. It was now relatively cheap, but you, it, when you're 22 years old in 2009 and you work, uh, you know, in the, in the in the health system, um, it still costs, you know, 100,000, 150,000 to buy a house, and you still need those deposits plus the the refurb cash. So very capital intensive, and um, it's not matter how hard you work. At some point, if you want to scale, one of the limitations is going to be. Um, the, the kind of finance resource yeah. so I suppose that that had always been there but there, there definitely was a point where um, and I remember vividly actually sitting with my founding partner of the business so we had an idea to grow a business but we didn't quite know what it looked we still didn't know what it looked like and then we were actually delivering some tr property training for a friend of mine this we must be talking six seven years ago now and um, we was we were staying away somewhere, and I, and afterwards we, we were having a beer, and and we we put together a cash flow forecast of our business, and the penny dropped. Like we just no way we were going to get anywhere near where we wanted to get yeah. without really taking the idea of, 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 of collecting investment finance seriously. Yeah. And we weren't, and it wasn't investment finance to buy the properties. We actually had that, and we've always had that. We always had investors that we could work with. Um, it was actually finance to let the business thrive. We needed to be able to um, pay staff and have an office and subscriptions and systems. Yeah. Um, we needed to work on our marketing and branding campaigns. And all that was going to cost a lot of money. And we also needed a lot of money to do the rent-to-rent -rent deals because they were just sucking our capital up. Every time we were doing it, it was costing ten or £12,000, which is our typical spend. Um, and there's only so many ten to twelve thousand pounds sitting around. You can't yeah, just do yeah. twenty, thirty of them. Without yeah, they sound cheap, but you need to do a lot of them, and then they they all add up, right? Absolutely. So the the cash flow is there, but the, the, the capital gets sucked away. So um, you know, we, we had to take the idea of, of of raising finance really, really seriously. And to do that, we had to take everything very seriously, full kind of plan to scale. So we did this cash flow forecast. We looked at where we wanted to be. We looked at what we were going to need. Very logical. And then we put the plan together to go and do it. And it was an aggressive and quite bold plan. But yeah, we went and did the, the crowdfunding, the equity raise, which was, in, which was hugely successful. I mean, even now I kind of pinch myself, but um, that's where I suppose the, the kind of the, it, everything got quite serious. Yeah, because these days, you know, a lot of crowdfunding is sort of property specific, you know, first charge, you know, it's a development deal basically, but yours sounds like it was a sort of a corporate a corporate yeah. is that right absolutely yeah like you might go and invest in brew dog in fact um, it equity it was an equity raise we that's what we did so yeah, those yeah. guys were um brew dog were the first unicorn business on the crowd cube platform which is what right. we went on and used so they right. were a unicorn business that went on to get valued at, mil at billions now we were valued over a million but um you know, we're, we're a long way from getting valued at a billion. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that's unlikely to ever happen, obviously. But um, yeah, it's that, that, that exactly the same idea. They sold um, the, the, the idea and got investors to buy into their products and what they were doing and the, and the, and the, the directors and the owners behind the business. And that's what we did. 
cool. So, I mean, given you have equity investors, and I mean, you know, this is something that you may may not be able to talk about, but you know, there's a there's a plan therefore to grow the business and and, and exit one day, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, and um, you know, the 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 great thing about 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 doing this sort of thing is you you. you People invest in in you know, we, we've said it in it and it's you know it, it's not it's a cliche but but it's very true people invest in people so we attracted people who invested in property and, and liked us as as um, as people as, as business owners so um, yes you know there's got to be a plan to to be able to exit or or um, to see a return on on the initial investment but. Um, I think you know there are a number of ways that that could come about. It could be through um, a sale. It could be through mergers and acquisitions. Um, which, when you're looking at the lettings industry, is 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 one of the, one of the most effective ways of, of rapidly scaling, which we we haven't done yet, but is is something I've thought about for a long time. We we are in different areas, um, and that comes with its own challenges. Um, so yeah, you know, one day that's that's where we we'd like to end up. You know, either selling the business or, or being able to merge and, and create a value that's such that we can, you know, um, sort of return through dividends to our to our investors and things. Cool. So I think that you know most people, you know, watching and listening to this, they're probably not necessarily thinking of building a business quite in the same way that you have. But even within sort of discrete property investing, there is often a tension between, uh, you know doing it yourself, raising money from investors or from banks on the debt side, but nevertheless sort of doing it yourself so you 100% own everything that you do mm -hmm. versus going down the JV route where, you know, your investors have got ownership in the asset and, you know, which, or, you know, and there's no right answer as to which is better and it's very sort of, it both depends on your own circumstances and also what you want to get out of it. But I suppose, um, you know, your experience of bringing other people into the business as long-term investors has been a positive one. And so when people are put off, you know, when you're speaking to people who maybe I think, who maybe are reluctant to JV on a on an individual property because they don't want to share or, you know, not have control, is that something that you've kind of taken learnings from and that you advise people around? No, I think, I think you said it yourself here, um, there's no right or wrong. It, you know, there's, there's just right or wrong for, for you as an individual. Um, I think it all comes back to what you personally want to to try and achieve. If if my goal when I'd initially set out was to be um, to, to to be more or less removed from from running my business and my portfolio after a year or two, um, putting a plan together to scale and and and, and raise equity and finance was never going to be the right thing. And, yeah, yeah. and and for me, that wasn't the case. You know, my, my I always wanted to to grow a big business and scale something out. Um, you know, you, you do lose certain elements of control when you when you work with other people, whether it's a JV on a on a particular project or you've got partners in your business. You've got to compromise. Um, you know, you, you you've got to reinvest in the business um, so that it can thrive. So um, there are pros and cons to it, like like anything, but um, you know the. The, the pros to it for us massively outweighed any of the cons. It was um, it was an important and necessary measure for us to be able to scale, and and it's exactly the same for people who perhaps don't want to build a big business but want to build their own portfolio and need to raise some investment to do it. You know, yeah. JVs and working with other people is a is a good way of being able to to do that. Makes sense. Cool. Okay, so look, switching gears a bit, and I had a few questions about this, and it's a question I get quite a lot actually. Um, you know, on social media from people who are starting out around analyzing deals. And, mm. you know, one of the good things about speaking to someone like you is that, you know, because you do put out stuff on social media, you know, I know some of the things that you've already kind of spoken about. So you had a post, a few, I think it was a few months ago, and it was talking about, you know, in summary, you know, it's not all about ROI, I think was basically kind of the theme of it. Yeah. Um, and so I just thought it'd be interesting to have a bit of a chat around that topic because a you know I agree, but I think that you know there's a lot of confusion around this, and also um, you know ROI is useful in a lot of ways. So it's also not about saying that that's not useful, but there are other things to be looking at. So do you want to kind of like jump off on that, and then we'll just kind of talk around it? Yeah. So look, I, I think one of the one of the one of the problems that the, the industry has is, is the, this fixation on getting a, you know, a very high return on the capital employed. And the truth is it's an 
it's a very easy figure to influence. Um, and I think we've sort of lost perspective of what a good, a good return on investment is or what a good return on capital employed is. And um, if you, if you, you know, I like to look at the markets as a bit of a default. What's, what's, a, what's a good sort of steady return? Well, if you're, if you're getting a 10% return from your investments in kind of an index fund or something like that, Tranka, yeah. Yeah. you'd feel like you're doing incredibly well. And, and you would be. Um, when we look at a pretty standard HMO, let's say a very prime HMO with very sensible lending on it, you're, you're likely to come out with somewhere around a, a 12 to 15% return of capital employed by the, you know, once you put some, some finance on it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really good return. You're getting a, a good solid property, you've got a, long, a lot of long-term rental confidence and you've got an incredible return versus the alternatives. Um, but there is a bit of a fixation on trying to get, you know, 30, 40, 50, and, and you know, sometimes a hundred percent. And while that's fantastic, it often does come at the expense of some of the other really important things that you need to try and achieve from a deal. One of the, one of the main things is, is the location and the rental confidence. Um, there is a relationship between, um, and, and I'm not, saying that this is the case for everything, but there certainly is a relationship between the types of deals and projects where you can recover a lot of your cash out, let's say 100% of it, and um, perhaps the um, likelihood, the the long-term rental confidence of those sorts of areas and the capital appreciation that you you might get in those sorts of areas. Typically, what I'm I'm really talking about is, is that these sorts of opportunities do exist, but they tend not to exist in prime areas. Yeah. And prime areas is where we've got the, 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 the best rental confidence. Yeah. And that rental confidence gives you the, a very, very healthy portfolio. Things on the periphery, yes, you might get a much higher return on your capital employed for a period of time, but what happens when actually you know the void starts to set in because you just don't have that same supply of tenant. Um, so you know it's not a one size fits all, it's it's a bit of a sliding scale, but I think I think there's not enough being spoken about there. Yeah. I think the other thing is, is we're sort of ignoring the, the growth and the net yields, which are very different to the return on the capital employed or ROI. If they're good, they're good measures of the general performance against the asset value. And if that slips too low, what, what, it, what it's telling us is that the, the deal potential, there's some risk in the deal somewhere. So maybe interest, if interest rates were to rise, um, if the net yield starts to um, narrow, 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 mm. um, it gets a little precarious. And, you know, again, if, if values start to drop or something happened that pushed values down, yeah. when you come to refinance, you know, there's, there's already sort of a hint that actually there's, there's something not quite right in the deal. So we want to keep a good balance between the growth and the net yield and the return on capital employed. And the big mistake I see a lot of people doing is, squeezing as much of the equity back out of the deal by going on to 80, 90% loan to value products. Yeah. What this does is, is give them a very good return on the capital employed, but the additional interest cost that they're paying on the, the, the mortgage, they've got more lending, um, washes out as a cost. And then the, the, the net yield comes down and down and down and down. Okay. So this is what I was, yeah, this is kind of something which I think is getting missed a lot, right? Which is that, and it's basically what you're saying, you know, the ROI can look fantastic, but it gets quite screwy when you've got small numbers involved. Like if yeah. you get a lot of your money out, yes, your ROI is going to look fantastic, but what does the profit part of that equation look like? Yeah. You know, is it the case that, you know, you're one void away from, you know, zero, you know, you know what, what's the break even on that? So, you know, profit margin doesn't seem to be something that gets talked about very much, you know, mm. but you know, that is, that's really what you're saying in terms of how, how, to, how sort of long-term, defensible is that return going to be i suppose yeah and for me it's it's all about balance it, it you know, property is a long game and it's very difficult to make money in the short term and i think um, a lot of experienced developers will even tell you that most developers will go bust at some point because they'll at some point the market will be poorly timed and you'll be in and and things will go go south um, so you've got to be in it to play the long game. You've got to be able to weather the storms. You've got to be able to 
um, accept that the property is going to get tired and you're not going to have the same, um, I suppose, um, demand from tenants before you go in and maybe upgrade it again. And all these yeah. things cost money and it all takes time. And the aim of the game for me is building a healthy, sustainable portfolio. Yeah. Um, something that was that will last and work well for 10, 12 years. Not something that's just going to work very well for the first two or three years that my initial fixed rate mortgage sort of um, um, yeah, works and then, then expires afterwards. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, so you know, when, you know, people are being told and saying all the time, you know, I'm, I'm dispassionate about it. I just follow the numbers. Mm. So there is a danger of just following the numbers. Therefore, you know, if you're only looking for the highest ROI, how do you, you know, if you want to focus on prime areas or higher quality areas where maybe the, you know, the return on the spreadsheet out of the box doesn't look quite as good, is there a way of capturing that in you know, in numbers in a spreadsheet, or is it is that just where the kind of your intuitive understanding of of the market and what you're trying to achieve comes in? I think so. I think this is where we you know, we we circle back round to you know there's not a right or wrong. There's just a right or wrong for you. What's right for me may be wrong for you. I I like to buy the sorts of properties that um, hit. You know, I have an investment criteria, but in addition to that, I like to know that in a fire sale, I could get rid of them comfortably back to the residential market. Yeah. Um, there are people who will buy HMOs, um, leverage them with commercial values that, that will struggle to do that, particularly in a hurry if they needed to. Yeah. Um, so I like to know that I can just resell to the open market, to the, to the owner-occupier market. I like to buy semi-detached and detached properties, which typically cost more. Yeah, square foot basis anyway, so you're, you're immediately getting a lower return. But there are other pros to to those sorts of things. You know, obviously the liquidity factor is one of them. Being able to sell them in a rush. Um, sometimes the capital appreciation can can be a little bit better on on semis and detached, depending on the size. So, um, I you know it's a very personal choice. So I think that it's it's crucial. You know, the numbers have got to lead you. You you you, you your, your head has got to rule. Um, but when you're thinking about the long-term picture, all sorts of factors, you know, come into play where you're going to be based, whether you've got plans to have a family, traveling and things like that, you know, it would be easy, wouldn't it, to go up into the, the Northeast and buy lots of really cheap stock, but then you've got to think about managing it. You get a great return, but then operationally, you're going to potentially have a massive headache. You know, that's, that's just another consideration and, 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 you know, the numbers can look great, but in reality, do they really? You know, what's the, what is it? What is your time cost that's perhaps not factored into the spreadsheet? Yeah, yeah, big time. I mean, you know, so uh, you know, another one that people ask around a lot is, you know, should I go straight to HMOs or should I do, you know, follow the more typical advice of, you know, start with renovating a flat, then renovate a house, then eventually work up to HMOs. And my answer is actually generally, you know don't be too scared of doing an HMO renovation. Like, you know, it's really like a house with a bit of extra fire regs. The bit you're scared about is, is owning it afterwards. <laughs> yeah, managing it. Yeah. I, I jumped straight into HMO, it was the first thing I bought. Yeah. And um, I didn't know the first thing about it. I mean, I did not know anything about it. My experience of, 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 of HMOs was being a student two years before, that that, that, that was it. Yeah. Um, and I made it work. And um, you know, I'm not, not a genius. Um, so I think well, one of the big considerations there though is probably is, is now and, it, and this has changed since since I was buying 10 years ago um, is the lending criteria yeah I don't personally know because I'm not it's not it's not something I've, I've come up against but I have heard I've been told by other people that um, some lenders won't um, give people who, who don't have landlord experience a HMO mortgage yeah um, yeah, and I think there probably is some truth in that, and I, 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 I can see the logic in it, but I still think it is illogical um, because there's not really a, um, kind of an objective measure to say, okay, you've got enough experience now, so you can manage HMO. I think it's just well, a. I don't see what I mean. Look, if they, I, I, I mean, so I've heard of this as well from certain lenders who who have this criteria um, now basically what they're saying is 
if you have owned a buy-to-let flat which an agent has run for you you are therefore qualified to manage your own <laughs> yeah. and it's like it. what did you learn by giving this one bed flat to an agent <laughs> like nothing right like you might have got a bit of rent each month so yeah it is a bit of a strange one um so look, before we sort of crack on with some questions from the audience just a final one on social media so last couple of weeks you've done a instagram live series but more generally like you know, you're reasonably active. Is Instagram the main the main platform for you, or do you? Do yeah, it is now. It didn't used to be. Well, no, I mean, for seven, six, seven years, Facebook was my real stomping ground. Yeah. Um, but um, what made you sort of switch focus? You know, I think it was the the. I think a couple of things. I think we have to remember what one of the great resources on Facebook in, in our industry are the big groups that you can be involved in with yeah. lots and lots of members. Um, there are lots of people who can help um, provide lots of good advice, lots of experience in there. Um, uh, and, and, and you know, there can be some bad advice in there and you know, you, you, you've got to have your wits about you. But I think we've got to remember that these groups are owned by people and on the large part, these groups are sales yeah. funnel sales mechanisms um, which is which is fine i have no issues with that whatsoever but it can get a little bit restrictive if you are um somebody who posts regularly somebody who um people um perhaps look up to um as almost a, ta kind of a talisman or um kind of a, a first kind of point of reference on certain topics and and um, it can ruffle feathers i suppose is a gentle way of putting it and right, okay and I, and, I, and I just found that, you know what, in fact, I just thought, and I, I've never had any issues with anyone whatsoever, uh, hand on heart, but I did begin to think that a portion of my businesses was fairly reliant on my, um, my ability to, to network in these places. And it felt like I was perhaps playing in someone else's backyard, you know, and they could just take the ball off me if they wanted to. Yeah. Um, and there were, there were, there were glimmers of it. And, and, and I thought, you know, I, I think I just need to do my own thing. So I, I came away from Facebook and, and did more, more on Instagram and found that that suited me and my style and, um, everything about it was just kind of more suited to me, but that won't be the case for some people. Facebook will be a better resource for some. I mean, I, I agree apart from anything else, like Facebook is just, uh, and LinkedIn actually, you know, I think a lot of us feel we should be doing more on LinkedIn, but yeah. it's one of these interfaces where there's just like notifications in every corner of the screen. It's a fire, and, it's a fire oh, hose. And yeah, it just hurts my head to even look at it. So, you know, yes, there's a business reason for doing these things, but you know, you need to, if you're going to do it, if you're doing it yourself, especially, you need to enjoy it or at least be able to tolerate it, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, but social for you, um, you know, I suppose, you know, why and, you know, what do you, what, what do you, what do you get out of it and what are you hoping to get out of it longer term? Um, I think there are, there are two, two main reasons for me. The first one, I'll be, you know, totally honest with you on this is because it is a very, very good marketing resource for my businesses. Um, it's where we meet lots of investors. Uh, it's, it's a platform to jump onto other platforms like podcasts and, magazines and things like that that I that I do and that that allows me to um, I suppose shout a little bit louder or, or or kind of spread my messages that that little bit further yeah so they're great for that they're they're also great resources for learning and I still learn a huge amount from it I'm no um, design expert and I take huge amounts of inspiration from projects that other people are doing, the materials that they use yeah. um, and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think it's um, double-edged for me and, and the, I get a huge amount of benefit for, for both reasons. And the, 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 the big risk with it, like anything, is that it can, you, it, there's the productivity element, right? Where yeah. you, you, you've just got to be able to keep a track on and what value you're really getting from it. And that, and that can be hard with social media. You can very easily end up down an Instagram hole, can't you? And <laughs> just three hours later. Like, yeah, yeah, you definitely yeah. can. I mean, I would say probably, probably one of, that's one of the things I like about Instagram actually is it's probably less likely that you end up in a hole there than you went in Facebook because Facebook you know, is bad. It is, it is sort of, you know, it is mobile, it is mobile native at least. So, you know, you've got the, you've got the feed. 
you can obviously start clicking on you know hashtags and stuff and get lost but you know it's not quite such a the temptation to do that is not quite so bad i would say than with some of the other ones but um but yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense i mean i think you know it's probably the same for me which is you know there's the sort of the personal which is it's, it's quite fun and you know it's uh it's not, you know, on your point about, you know, taking inspiration from people, what I like about it is, you know, because you can go on any kind of Pinterest or whatever and find interior design stuff. And, you know, that's all well and good, but A, half of it's a CGI anyway, and B, you know, okay, but how do I do this on a budget? So when you actually are looking at people who are doing stuff and you kind of know that they're working to budgets and you know what sort of budget those are, then you can kind of get ideas of what's achievable. So I think that's, that's absolutely right. I think it's tangible. You can, it's so easy on Instagram to reach out and drop someone a message and ask them a question. And if they've got time, they'll, they'll respond to you. And, and I like that as well. And I, and I get the same from people. I mean, for me, the investing thing is kind of the, it's, it's the furthest out there in the sense that, you know, I've, well, I've been personally raised money off it, although I've had, had, you know, investor discussions off the back of that platform. But um, I think before then, there's the intermediary step, which is networking amongst your peers. And, you know, some people like going to in-person networking events. And, you know, I do a bit of that as well, but probably not very much. Um, but, you know, you can build, you know, a social network on a social network, right? That's what, that's what they're called that. So, you know, you can kind of like develop out your, your network into, um, you know, so that when you've got a question, there are people that you can, you can ask that question of, right? Um, Definitely. And I think that... You know, for people that are listening to this, you know, the more you, the more you put into it, the more you can take out of it as well. You know, it's an unwritten rule, but there is a sense that you know, everyone, everyone wants, everyone wants everyone else to share, and it gets more, it gets more valuable as people do that, right? Yeah, the more you give, the more you will get back. I think it's um, that's one of the rules of reciprocity, um, and it's just it's just striking the balance. And I think a lot of people in their earlier stages of their, their career, their property career, find it difficult to, um, I suppose, find their voice on these sorts of platforms. Yeah. And my advice to everyone is just, just be yourself. That's the, that's, the, that's the one thing that nobody else can do is just be yourself. Maybe, maybe you're an expert in um, commercial property and even though you're, you're doing it residential, there's a huge amount of value that you could probably bring to your audience from that um, experience that you've got. Perhaps um, you, you could just share your story and let people in and invite them in That's to what you're doing you as a beginner. You don't have to set yourself up as a point of authority. Like you can just share your story, right? Um, and you know, naturally over time you will become more authoritative because you've got gained experience, but that's not a prerequisite, I wouldn't say. Absolutely not. And again, we've got to remember that people invest in people very you know it's we, we we've got business profiles and and um that we've run for years and the the difference in engagement between the business profiles and and having my own is, is yeah. massive it's it's, yeah. it's it's so difficult to get the same degree of traction and an engagement from a um a, a business that that doesn't immediately have that face to it yeah um whereas on a personal level it's much easier i suppose people feel like you are talking directly to them and and, and you are um and it, you know that there will be people there that are interested in investing in you because they like you or whatever it is you're doing not necessarily that you have or haven't done 10 or 20 or 30 hmo projects already that's that's usually fairly irrelevant and for the investors for the very few people who that is important to they're unlikely to be using these sorts of platforms anyway in all honesty they will probably be investing in commercial environments yeah yeah, yeah, agreed. Agreed. Cool. Well, look, let's um, let's do some questions that have come in from people before the recording. So we've got a few good ones here. Um, one from Jennifer Wilshire at Jen Harkin sixty eight. So she asks, how? And this is quite specific, but I think there's a broader one to sort of tackle here. How many people in your HMO before you have to add two hobs in the kitchen? So <laughs> that's very, very specific. But I think that um, you know, my yeah, I think. Well, in my experience, it's between five and six people. It's kind of one one set of kitchen facilities. That's pretty much your experience as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the the actual default position on this is to look at your um, local amenity standards. Exactly. So the national guidelines will tell you, but 
it doesn't really mean much because your local council will more than likely impose um, some additional um, requirements on that. So generally speaking for within the authorities that I've got HMOs, which is several, um, at six, they, they generally want five, five, um, five hob units. So not necessarily two ovens. Um, no, sorry, five hob units and they'll be happy with a, a double oven. Yeah. Um, we've got some where they've not been quite happy with that, but when we've given them a microwave or um, a, uh, another microwave, they've been happy with that. Yeah. So there are, um, there are usually pretty black and white guidelines given by the, the yeah, documented the local immunity standards, but there's usually a conversation to have as well. You know, and yeah, I think a lot of people rush, chuck two hobs in, two ovens, kind of double stack. They don't look that great, and you need a big, big old kitchen space to make it work. So, you know, typically in the house that we buy, the five and six beds, the actual size isn't isn't that that different, particularly in the communal areas. Um, that just wouldn't really work in many of them, to be honest, Roland. So, um, yeah, we have to do alternatives. So, I think the answer for Jennifer and other people is a, you know. Google, you know, HMO standards and then the name of your council and you will find the PDF. Sometimes you have to just yeah. Google it like that because if you try and find it through the council's website, you never will find it. Yeah. So, the the, the .gov website is the, is the hub. So you go to the .gov website, yeah. you can kind of get into any one of them from there. Yeah. And then, as you say, you know, even then the PDF might not be completely clear, particularly when you're going over five people. So... I mean, what I, well, you know, what I always do and what I tell people to do as well is, um, you know, try and get the HM officer to come out to the house exactly. before or during the refurb to actually yeah. be on the spec. Is that something that you do as well? I mean, you're... Yeah, every, every, every time, every time it's, there's, there's, there's just no reason why you wouldn't do it. It can be such a, such a, a useful thing to do because not only are you getting it kind of straight from the horse's mouth, but you're also getting an opportunity to build a bit of a relationship and a rapport with your local officer, which is incredibly important. Yeah. And then when you do potentially need to have those discussions about certain conditions that they may be imposed on you, like putting another oven in or something like that, you, know, you can have conversations about that. And there often is some flexibility because yeah. what people don't realize is a lot of the guidance is fairly great. Yeah. Um, and well, if you're producing this, if you're providing this and that over there, then okay, I think we could compromise on that. There is definitely an element of that. Some authorities and some some inspectors. Yeah, it depends. Play the like that. Is. Some won't. Some won't allow you to build rubber. Yeah. But you know, yeah, I completely agree. Like it's uh, it's much better to get them warmed up to you, particularly if it's your first time in a certain certain yeah. council. You know, get them in, uh, meet them, and then you know, when your application for license goes in, it's not a cold. You know, it's it's a warm, it's a warmed up situation, right? And and they're sort of bought into the whole process anyway because they've been there at the start and they've they've said if you do this this and that then we'll give you the license well guess what i did this and that so you know we're kind of uh, it should be it should be pretty straightforward um cool so another question from i don't know the name but at wa sykes how do you find architects that give both value and expertise so i suppose the reason i chose this one is because architects is one of those things that people use in different ways on the mm -hmm. sort of stuff that we do mm -hmm. and I think there's an assumption that you always have to have an architect mm -hmm. so do you use do you would you use architects on every re refurb that you do if there's no no not at all so we'll use an architect I'll use an architect when um, usually when there's a planning consideration as well so uh, if planning or, or, or building regs need to be involved, then then that's when I'll get an architect involved. So, um, I, I suppose sort of the, the kind of the if we look at the, the, the more simple stuff, even even a dormer, yeah, or a um, a garage conversion maybe to a bedroom. Um, there's a lot of technical stuff that needs to be considered there, including loading um, and um, levels and things like that the kind of the usable space once you've accounted for insulation and boarding and things like that and yeah. what i find is that when you use those guys you just you you just get a very black and white picture of 
of what you're going to be, what you need to do, and what you'll what what you'll be left with by doing that. Um, and particularly when we're looking at amenity standards, space sizes, adding rooms, it's, it's incredibly important that that we know exactly the size of the rooms that we're going to end up with. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a gamble if you're just going to kind of guess that. It also gives your builders a a a roadmap to to and kind of all the accountability they need to to do it in that particular way so that you know that a you get what you want and b um you can get it all signed off at the end without any issues so um yeah i, I yeah whenever planning permission is required or kind of whenever we need anything um uh inspecting from a building rigs point of view, because we're changing the layout, then that's when I like to get get some drawings done. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, I mean, I think that you know, yeah, if you're doing something with building, which needs building regs sign off, then you're going to need to get uh, you know building regs drawings done. There's no sort of getting around that. I think that uh, where some people seem to get frustrated is you know when you're particularly doing an HMO and you're changing layouts, but it could be any type of project. Um, you know you're always wanting to have another look at, well, what if we did this? Or, you know, lots of permutations generally. So sometimes with an architect, that sort of back and forth can get either quite slow or expensive. <laughs> and so, um, you know, being able to do some of that sort of floor planning stuff yourself and only relying on the architect for, you know, the dormer and the garage conversions and the rear extensions and stuff can be quite helpful. Um, and then where to actually find them, I suppose, which was the original question, um, I mean, architects, builders and stuff, like, do you have any kind of like particular like hacks on those? Because that is another one that people get concerned about. The best piece of advice you give anybody when it comes to those sorts of contacts is, is to hold on to them for dear life when you find a good one. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's sort of no magic spell to finding them, you know, like, like most things, um, the, the, the reliable people generally come by word of mouth and unfortunately not the back of the newspaper or on rated people and things like that. Yeah. You've got to kiss word a few from frogs, I think, Roland, to be honest, mate. Word of mouth can be tricky. I certainly have. Never one wants to share their good builds and get them too busy. But I wonder, I mean, one, I have not actually done this myself, but I, I did hear it recently. I did quite like it, which is that, you know, if you're looking for builders particularly, you know, walk around the streets around, you know, where your project is and see what other builders there are working around and then, you know, walk in and talk to them. And if they're, if they're a dick, then, you know, walk on. And if they seem quite nice and friendly and helpful, then, you know, at least you found someone to talk to. Cause I agree if you start in, um, I find these websites like check a trade or whatever. I mean, like research and you get, you know, a thousand results and it's like, well, where do I even start? So yeah, it's yeah. Um, overwhelming and, you know, not you. You've got to ask yourself why. Why would a good tradesman need to advertise their services somewhere like that? The reality is they don't. Good tradesmen's booked up. Um, yeah, agreed. Um, I don't actually know who sent this one in, but it is an interesting one. And given that you've got sort of some, you know, sophisticated investors in your business, there will be something that's come up, I'm sure. So this person says they're interested in HMOs, but they're worried that big co-living developments could disrupt the market. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's the the one big question that remains unanswered, and ultimately, only time will tell. Um, I think the, the the problems that those sorts of schemes will always face is the the preclusions mainly by cost because they they're just so expensive to acquire those sorts of sites that that need to be in city centres. Yeah. And the build cost is phenomenal. Um, and then when all that's considered, plus investor returns or, or development profits, you've got to rent it at a certain level. And that then means that, yes, well, the product might be very good. The rent's got to be very expensive, certainly in comparison to the likes of my rooms and your rooms. Yeah. So, and, and at the end of the day, the number one, number one driver you know for, for for young people who are choosing their accommodation is still is still um budget value they'll look for value for money and they'll have a budget to stick to yeah so just because someone builds something and and uh, that's incredible in the city center and, and needs to rent it for 200 pound a week 
doesn't mean that that actually 500 people that would otherwise be renting homes from you and I and, and other HMO investors will will suddenly lose all their tenants because they're going into those buildings. We offer a very different product. We're never going to try and create a product like that. Actually, what we create works incredibly well for people who have a particular type of budget, who want to live in a particular type of area and want to live in a particular type of way. And I think we just need to stick to our guns, stand firm, keep doing what we do very, very well, make our products as, as good as we possibly can, manage them as good as we possibly can, take care of our tenants like the customers and let the big boys worry about their own big problems. Yeah, I mean, that's, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're, you're closer to the student, student market than I am for sure. But I mean, it seems to me that we've seen this already in, student, in the student world, right? Where purpose-built and student HMOs do seem to live side by side. And some people like one and some people like the other. Definitely. Yeah, students. Yeah, the intimacy of a, of a shared house is different to living in a block. The block's Very different, different though. Like that's the kind of. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's massive. It's hugely different. Um, it's, it would, it's really a different way of living. Yeah, for, certainly for the, for the home born students, you know, the British students, um, going to university and living with your friend is a pass, kind of a rite of passage. Yeah. Um, when you've got the security guards and curfews and things like that in the bigger buildings, it's probably not quite the same. Um, you've also, we've also got to remember that there is a cultural thing at play here. Students are a, um, have, have a, their own student culture. They like to live you know, amongst each other. They like to do similar things. Yeah. Um, in the blocks, you know, that, that, that's happening as well, but there is an international, a slightly different international culture. Um, that's a, perhaps a bit more apparent. And so they tend to, generally speaking, like to, you know, live and, and, and be around people from, you know, the same parts of the world. Maybe they have the same, you know, native tongue and, and things like that. So um, th there's also that that's going on as well. And, and I think, there's nothing wrong with that. That's absolutely fine. But certainly for the foreseeable, I, I think the blocks and the big PBSA will continue to attract the overseas students and, and the first year students who are reading, you know, back at home before university starts with mum and dad looking at the glossy brochures. But then after that, I think the, you know, the, uh, the good old kind of British culture will reign strong and students and young people will still want to live in homes with other young people. Yeah. I mean, you know, with purpose built, as you say, it is, you know, and certainly with my experience at university is that, uh, you know, it's more popular amongst the overseas students, but actually it's more popular amongst the overseas students' parents because they're the ones paying for it. <laughs> so they like the fact that it's, you know, the counterparty in this contract is a bigger organisation. It's not some you know, private dude you found in Gumtree or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's maybe more as a serious environment for your studies and it's safer and those kind of things, which if you're coming from Hong Kong or Singapore, those are the sort of things you worry about when you're sending your kids to the other side of the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and they're very good at it. You know, they've got security guards and, you know, all sorts of, sort of things like that. Yeah. But then in the sort of the co-living, but you know, professional HMA space, well, you know, we're all adults at this point, so our parents don't have that kind of, uh, don't have that say over it. So, I mean, I suppose it's going to become down, it's much more sort of an individual decision about how you want to live, as you say. And exactly. And, 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 you know, the majority of people beyond um, sort of graduate level um, who stay in the cities are, are not the overseas students. They, they tend to return to their, their own countries. Um, back, they tend to go back home and um, people, students who are used to living in houses with their friends aren't necessarily going to suddenly change their minds and decide to live in a big fancy building. They could have done that anyway and they, they decided not to. So yeah, why? What, what's changed? Yeah, it all makes sense. Cool. Um, so last one, let's do this one quite quick. So, and this is from uh, friends of yours, Charlie and Jelaine Sullivan. What, and this is I think for you basically, what is your, what are your five to 10 year plans? <laughs> five to 10 year plans. Um, I think outside of business, you know. Well, actually, yeah, exactly. Let's, let's part the business one. Cause we talked about that earlier in growing, <laughs> yeah. growing and scaling your business and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, outside of business, what's, 
and what's something that you're working towards or that's something that you're really interested in that people don't know about you? Um, I think Gemma and I would like to have a family. Yeah. Um, Charlie and Jenny asked the question, they've got three young kids already. Um, yeah. And you've got two, two daughters, haven't you? Yeah, I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in the same house and we're homeschooling, so I can uh, highly recommend it. Sure, yeah, so I think without any any doubt that um, our own family um, is is kind of there somewhere in the next sort of five years. Um, I you know I desperately want to um, spend more time in the mountains. That's my biggest passion, and exactly what that looks like, I'm not sure whether it, whether it's having my own place out there or or maybe it's just finding more time throughout the year to to get out there regularly i'm not sure but it, it would be it would be fantastic to have a place out in the alps i mean that's that, that's i suppose one of my kind of big goals next five to ten years that i would like to to try and achieve are you into the sort of um vision boarding and like mapping this stuff out or do you sort of focus on you know what's immediately in front of you and I'm, i i probably I probably I generally don't think too far ahead and and, I, and in part that's been a conscious decision because I think I did do when I was younger and then found that years were just passing by and yes I've made lots of progress in the businesses and things like that but um, what 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 did that mean I perhaps lost a bit of perspective on what that progress meant right. the yeah the the top line had grown but so the bottom line mm um so i think just you know just being present and enjoying enjoy the process. now more um is is absolutely the most important thing to me um yeah. without any doubt yeah that no, makes a lot of sense if you uh if you're only focused on the end goal then yeah you're not enjoying the process and I, and you know probably if you don't enjoy the process you won't achieve the end goal anyway right and this is something you know people always say you know why and to be honest Ron, I, I don't know what the end goal is yet you know with with the smart property business obviously you will, will look for um, a sellout and exit one day but personally from business I, I don't see any um, you know there's nothing that really sort of stands out as me I, you know, I'm not looking to exit uh, you know business or anything like that I, I'm not looking to go reduce my the time I've got to spend doing doing what I do I, I love it um, so um, maybe just a, a slightly better balance <laughs> well that would, that would be on you if you have kids anyway all right listen we should probably leave it there because I've taken up a lot of your time but Andy thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, yeah I hope everybody's really enjoyed this thanks very much thank you Roland bye so there you go guys, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. A huge thank you to Andy for his time and if you want to get in touch with him, I've tagged up his social links in the show notes so go give him a follow. I've got some more brilliant guests lined up for season one so don't forget to subscribe to be notified when the next show drops and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.